Hello and welcome to the full season preview episode of the Ulster Rugby Roundup. I'm Gareth Hanna and joining me to look ahead to the 21-22 campaign is our resident rugby correspondent, Jonathan Bradley. Hello Jonathan, welcome back. Hi, are you well? Very well, Jonathan. I say welcome back like you were away. I just mean welcome back again this week because you never leave. You're, you're a permanent fixture here. Not a permanent fixture, but a very welcome one is Ulster Rugby photographer extraordinaire Esportif's head of global brand and communications and golfing superstar, John Dixon. Thank you very much. Uh, good to be here. Did I like your title? Yes, I'll do. Good. <laughs> if you were on the first day at the Open, that's what I'd say as the wee starter. So, John, you are here because uh, you were one of the few in the HAC in London to watch Ulster's 33-3 win over Saracens on, what was that, Thursday evening? So last week, everybody, all of our listeners were, were very concerned for the, not all of them, a good proportion of our listeners and their questions seemed very concerned for the season ahead after the defeat at Kingspan. So I presume everybody feeling much more upbeat this week. You were there. Just how good was that Ulster performance? It was, it's a, it was a very difficult one to figure what actually happened at the end of the 80 minutes because Ulster were magnificent on the evening. Uh, they did everything right that they did wrong the previous week. And I think that Saracens probably came into that game thinking London, unusual f- venue, um, Ulster away from home, will put 50 on them. And the, they may have had some sort of taking it easy complex, but Ulster took it to them from the very start and uh, scored those early tries. And all of a sudden, the, the whole Saracens team forgot what they were there to do. They just uh, seemed to freeze and Ulster just grew into the game and I mean even the replacements that come on in the second half every single one of them contributed to the game and to Ulster's performance which was probably one of their best away performances probably if I'm going to say Harlequins at the Stoop in the the, uh, European Cup and of course that went against Saints at uh, at Franklin's Gardens a number of years ago when they scored uh, uh, the, the bonus point try Jared Payne scoring the bonus point try try to win that game. It felt a bit like that because a 33-3 scoreline was a hell of achievement. But what was strange was the venue itself. While it's unique and a very special place to play rugby, it's essentially a cricket pitch right in the centre of the city of London. Beautiful surface. Although I reckon it had been bombed well and truly during the war because even the boys were saying afterwards that you know there were soft patches and hard patches, compacted patches on that pitch. Uh, it was strange sometimes they were slipping a wee bit and here here and there on the pitch but um it's a strange venue and it, you know both sides of the pitch if you saw on t- on the uh, uh on the feed on on the, on the website was um little pagoda tents up outside and they were serving obviously beers and, and champagne what have you and the crowd seemed more interested in having a little social gathering than watching the game. So from a spectator point of view, there wasn't that much atmosphere and there wasn't that much of a support for Saracens, to be fair. And uh, they didn't let Richard Mulligan in. It's a fair play to him for that. <laughs> he was obviously asked if he was going to wear a dark blue blazer, light blue shirt, chinos and brogues. And when he no. said no, it was like, sorry, you can't come in, that's it. No, no, Mulligan, would have, Mulligan would have turned up in a red gilet, <laughs> <laughs> cargo shorts and his, his uh, caterpillar boots. I've never seen him in anything else, ever. <laughs> ever. Jonathan, what was the difference, other than everything, what was the difference, or what would you pinpoint as a particular differences between Ulster's two pre-season performances? 
a big thing is the fact that one was the first and one was the second. You know, <laughs> talking to uh, like talking to Alan O'Connor during the week, and he said, you know, don't put too much stock in it. It's like we weren't as far off as we looked last week, but it was the first game. There was an awful lot of uh, an awful lot of rust to be shaken off. That had been done with the first hit out, and then another factor, obviously, was the addition of James Hume coming back in, Nick Timoney coming back in, Mike Lowry. Rob Balakin, you know, it was a team that looked an awful lot more like a team that will see play Glasgow. And then just things that are being worked on in pre-season, you know, there was an awful lot of talk about how they'd looked at that first game, used that during the week, reviewing it essentially like it was a proper game, you know, reviewing the defence, reviewing the breakdown and using that to school what they were doing and training that week, even though it was a short break. And you could see the benefits of that. You could see how important that extra week's training had been to what they're trying to do in attack. Now, there were still a few bits that Dan talked about of needing, needing to be tightened up again. Obviously, they'll work on that next week when the players come back in, having been uh, given a few days off just between the end of preseason and the start of the season, I guess. But you don't want to put too much stock into friendlies obviously and you know we said the same thing last week whenever everything was terrible you know it's a friendly so obviously with this win it's a friendly as well but it's a good confidence builder going into what I think is going to be a key block of games at the start and one man that you mentioned in your uh, little um, five talking points piece after the game which uh, I think when when time allows you'll be doing it after most or, or every game this season and well worth a read for our, uh, our online subscribers. Uh, one man you mentioned in that as being um, particularly key to all of Ulster's impressive attacking play was uh, was Michael Lowry, which no surprise to to anybody who's listened to this podcast for any stretch of time that he should get a positive mention on anything that we do. To be fair, I think like I mentioned a number of other players, you're just uh, <laughs> picking out the fact that again, I talked about Lowry, but um, Lowry and or Addison is going to be very important to this idea, I think, of setting up these midfield rucks, having pods of forwards either side, having dual playmakers, dual decision makers on either side. Now, obviously, the thing with certainly one of the tries was Burns and Laurie were on the same side. So that's not necessarily how you would envisage it working in theory, I suppose. But I thought that Ulster looked at their most incisive whenever they had Burns and Laurie. And I thought Laurie for, you know, being his first game back, looked really sharp. I thought Craig Gilroy played really well. I thought Bradley Roberts showed up really well. I actually thought Marcus Ray played very well as well. Like, um, I thought he was You're going through every question I'm about to ask here and one fell sweep to him. I was was just trying to spread the love lest I be be accused of just always talking about Michael Laurie playing (laughs) That was just the first of of several questions. Jonathan mentions Bradley Roberts there. An interesting battle mounting up between himself and John Andrew as to who's going to be the direct backup to, to Rob Herring this season. Yeah, it will be. It's good for Ulster to have that strength and depth again uh, at number two. Uh, but I think both of them contributed to that game. As I was saying, that the replacements did come on and John came on and uh, control things uh, later in that second half. But uh, Bradley certainly had a super game. You know, that was one of the things, if you look at the line-out, 
Uh, we, we were dominant in that line out. Greg Jones in particular, I thought, played very well on a, yeah. with a taking ball in that line out. Big Al O'Connor. And what about Mick Kearney? What a shift to two games he's played so far for Ulster. Two massive shifts. And like he, he, he's no slouch. So there is fire, fire power in that Ulster pack. Their scrum, again, very solid. Um, so I thought that they gave the backs the platform to work from. Just on Roberts, before we leave, I'm interested to note Dan McFarlane's quotes after the game. One of them was that there are core bits of Roberts' game, he's talking about Roberts, of his game that he needs to work on to become a complete player. But the progress that he's made thus far would indicate that he will achieve that. It sounds like Dan has very much high hopes for, for Bradley going forward. Like whenever he initially came in last year, he sort of played one or two games and think, right, well, like what's what's actually a prospect for this guy? But it sounds like Dan really, really sees him becoming a key player for Ulster over the coming years. Yeah, you can even see it in, in, in training that he uh, he's a very physical guy. He's quite small and he packs a powerful punch. So when he hits a guy, um, because of low centre of gravity, he's the ability to put boys back in there, you know, take, knock them two or three yards back. And if that gets momentum into, into the tackle situation, the next guys coming in can clear out so much easier. Uh, and I think that's what his big strength is. It's, it's his defence. And then the whole idea of hitting the ball and getting the ball turned over and helping that process is very, very uh, important. And going forward, yes, I reckon you're right. I think Dan obviously does like him. Uh, and don't forget, Roddy, Roddy Grant has a, a lot to play in that development and that, that skills area. And now with uh, Chris Newby in there, their Ulster will, uh, you know, will have a forward pack that's really, really well drilled. And I think that's what you look forward to this season, seeing plenty of good continuity from the pack, plenty of good, strong yeah. driving play from the pack. Yeah, absolutely. Jonathan, I think when I interrupted you to, to scold you earlier, you were talking about Craig Gilroy. Um, he obviously bowed to try and uh, you were just saying how impressive he w- was uh, was playing, particularly after his his quotes last week or a couple of weeks ago of how he, he sort of, you know, he really uh, thinks he still has it to to push the likes of Balakoon and all those younger guys for a start. Um, what do you think his prospects are of getting that in the early weeks of the season? Yeah, I think like he just looks sharp, like Everybody knows what kind of player Craig Gilroy is and everybody knows what he's capable of. The reason that we're talking about his place in the team is largely due to the fact that Ulster have depth in the back three that they don't have in other positions. Yeah. Three, you know, if Jacob Stockdale, Balakin and Addison started a game for Ireland, you wouldn't bat an eyelid really, you know. Um, that's the level of depth that Ulster have there. But just by virtue of having been in there, having played those uh, both games, I think Craig Gilroy probably is on the front foot to start against Glasgow. Now, I know the game's still a week and a half away, but like somebody like that in this squad as well, I think can be important because mm. they've lost so much experience over the last couple of years. And like Craig Gilroy has been playing for Ulster now for a decade. Luke Marshall's out injured, but like those are the two players that Ulster have of that length of tenure. And, you know, you're watching the, the first Saracens game and you can see him during the breaks and play and stuff. You know, he's going over and he's talking to uh, Aaron Sexton. He's talking to Ben Moxham. He's talking them through things. Just what he's saying that just by virtue of not having played as many games, they just don't have that same sort of, I guess, bank of knowledge there. And that's something that's valuable as well in a back line that 
as promising as it is and as talented as it is, hasn't played huge amount of games. You, know, you talk about Stockdale, it's easy to forget that Stockdale's still only 25. You know, if Stockdale hadn't achieved what he's achieved in an Ireland jersey, he'd still be thought of as one of the young players. Yeah, which is incredible to think, really. Uh, yeah, look, it'll be very interesting. We'll talk more about that next week whenever we do our uh, particular look ahead to the Glasgow game. But just very quickly, Jonathan Sean Reedy went off injured on Thursday. Do we know any more on that yet? Yeah, it was a shin injury. And Dan at the time didn't think it was too serious, but serious enough, obviously, to stop him playing the rest of the game was how he described it. And, you know, we talked about the, the depth in the pack for the last couple of weeks. And obviously... With Jordy out at the minute, and another injury in the back row is not what they want. Although I agree with Baker, like I thought, Greg Jones has actually showed up pretty well in the two games. I mentioned Marcus Ray there, but just I suppose by virtue of um, what they want to put out is their back row. You don't want to be going without uh, two of your presumed starters. No, not not ideal uh, uh, for any game. We should also talk about the new kit that was on show on Thursday evening. John, you were there to see it in the flesh. What do you think? Surprising. Very, very what's, pleasing. What, what's the official colour? Yellow, is it? Or yeah, it's saffron. It was, oh, it's saffron. Yeah, of course, of course yeah. it would be saffron. They were calling it golden on comms. Yeah. Okay. No, saffron uh, is the, 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 the correct colour terminology, boys. <laughs> and I think, it. I mean, personally speaking, I was a bit... When I heard the boys talking about it as, oh, we've got our, we're wearing our yellow shirts tonight, our mustard shirts, I thought to myself, oh, what's this going to look like? And yet, when Big Al came out uh, onto the pitch with them, and, um, and you know, maybe, you know, with those dark, that nice background with the dark trees and things, they really made for great photos. And, you know, I thought, damn good job um, by Cookery and Ulster to, to bring the, the saffron through into the kit. I think it's the best away kit we've ever had. Yeah, I think it's brilliant. I really love it. Jonathan, what do you think? I like it, but I understand that some other people don't like it as much because I've I've just seen it getting mixed reports. I think it looks well. And yeah, I thought that the training range to go along with it looked well as well. And like I said, in those five things, like you remember the first time that you see a kit. So that is the win, whereas the purple kit, unfortunately, will always be associated with uh, losing the zebra. So these things do matter. Plus... I think personally, anyway, that it's good to do different things with away kits because, and as a Spurs fan, I know this well, there's only so much you can do with a plain white home shirt <laughs> Yeah, every single year. Yeah. no, You know, so to do something a bit different with an away kit, I'm all for it anyway. Yeah. I think if we keep talking about how nice it is, somebody else might listen to it and send us one. I'm a size small if, uh, if anybody is listening and uh, can be contacted for my address if they want to push it. <laughs> I now this is obviously before my time because freebies had largely dried up in journalism by the time I came in. But Michael Sadler does tell stories of being sent kits in the past yeah. and not, not really knowing what to do with them. Oh my word. John, you work at Ulster. I was forgetting in this moment. John, you can pull a few strings from it. I want one. No, definitely no. not. Well, you want one, but you don't want to pay for it, is essentially what we're saying. Yeah, yeah. This, this has just turned into a blatant request for free stuff. Like, this is not what this podcast was formed on. Uh, yeah, sorry. Well, there we go. I'm just still better about that time. Tommy Boo will give you a coat and I didn't get one. But here we go. We'll not drag it. Tommy go way back. Whereas you, you're just a blow in. <laughs> just a blow in. 
Okay, so on now to our uh, season preview proper. We had said last week that we had a few questions from Ian Frizzell that we we're going to hold over to form the basis of our discussion as they were uh, such good questions. So first of all, very simply, and what other way to start a season preview than what would constitute a success this season? A win. <laughs> Just one? <laughs> I think... Um... Beat Glasgow in the first game and then work is done. <laughs> That's taken one game at a time to extreme levels. So <laughs> what do we think right now? What would you what would you say is the minimum requirement to class this season as a success? Obviously, last year Ulster finished second. Their pool didn't make the Pro 14 uh, knockouts because of the change in structure that actually didn't need to happen, but we're not better. We'll not bring it up again. And then the Challenge Cup uh, defeat in semifinals, which was a bit disappointing. But so what do you think off the back of that? What do they need to do? And South Africans coming in, the landscape's changing. What do we think? Well, I think Ulster, you know, they're Let's be honest about it. We we have to be in those playoffs. We have to be competing at the end of the season, and uh, that would have to be the goal at the start. I mean, you're you're going into a competition. You take every every game, uh, you know, as it comes. But you start with a win, and you follow it with another win, etc. And you just build up, build up. But look, there's there's other things here. You know, you have to beat Leinster. That's that would to me, yeah, that would be a, a massive move forward. Mm. You have to beat Leinster. You have to win the Interpros. Uh, and that's where we're going to be starting. So, like you know, we have to start with the interpros, win those, and then you build on top of that. I don't think there's anything to really fear from the South African teams. I think that a lot of the South African teams are unsure about coming up to to play in the um, in the Northern Hemisphere. I think you, you saw what happened last year in the in the Rainbow Cup final, whenever the Bulls came to to play Treviso or Benetton, and uh, they got hammered. I think it's, I mean, that has, that has put the frighteners on them a bit. Although, if you speak to any of the South Africans, they, you know, they have the thing won already. You know, that's typical, typical South Africans. They think they have the whole thing won already and we're just turning up to make up the numbers. I don't think that's the case. I think that uh, I, Ulster would welcome any of these South African teams to the Kingspan Stadium and we'll give them a really good game and would hope to be winning all their home games. John, and I maybe should have started this by, asking you to give us a quick run through of how uh, the league actually works because obviously it's not the Pro 14 anymore and the, the pools are gone. Do you want to just give us a little quick uh, quick summary? Yeah, well, the pools are gone, um, which is the main thing, I suppose. But there are mini leagues within, which is actually an interesting point that John made just whenever you're talking about in terms of silverware. So there will actually be an Irish Interprovincial Championship. So it is possible to win that. So that's, that is a good goal, actually given that you'll have two of the Christmas Interpros at home with uh, Connacht and Leinster sort of back-to-back over Christmas. So that's an interesting one. And then just with the way the structure is, you play everybody once. So that's 15 teams. Mm-hmm. Sorry, 15 other teams. So that's 15 of your games. And then the extra derbies are your other three. Then there will be playoffs this year, which is where I suppose Ulster's main goal comes into it I think somebody had actually pointed out in the comments to the listener question thread there that the Ulster are still with third favourites for the competition which is interesting I think um, in light of just what John said about the South Africans that um, the bookies anyway still have those three Irish provinces as the top three teams in the competition I think what would represent a decent season would be making the semi-finals of the competition being in the last four would be decent uh, play off at goes to quarterfinals. Yeah, 
to the seven top eight, so they should get into the get into those. But well, I'll put it this way: if you're not in the top eight in a sixteen competition, <laughs> yeah. where a decent number of the teams are bad, then that would be a bad season. So like, you're looking you're looking for a home quarterfinal on the on the yes, semifinal place. Getting into the semifinal, you're obviously you're in charge of your own destiny, somewhat to who you play and where you play in those semifinals, but you are sort of in the lap of the gods to a degree of as we've seen the last couple of seasons, it could come down to just when you end up playing Leinster, frankly. Yeah. Well, well one good thing from an Ulster point of view this season will be the crowds back at the Kingspan. That's going to be massive for them because I have no doubt that last year, uh, well, the last 18 months, having no fans really at the stadium has caused Ulster to falter. They missed that vibe and, and the excitement and, and the adrenaline that that 16th man can bring them. So I think that's going to be a massive plus for Dan McFarland and his team. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, you know, they lost obviously more games at home without fans than they had done in the rest of Dan McFarland's tenure like they lost one game pre-COVID under Dan McFarland at home and that is a massive thing mm. most pertinently in Europe because you look at it you know Ulster lost at home to to lose and that really just that just had such a massive impact on the European campaign because that was first up and, the- and when you're talking about Europe as I suppose the second main goal certainly for me the baseline would be getting to that last 16 and giving the, given the two legs and given what we've said there about the presumed return of home advantage it would be giving it a real rattle in the last 16 no matter who you're who you're playing yeah because well, you're guaranteed to get them at home yeah before we look at that in a little bit more detail ian also had asked just off the back of the south africans coming in is it a great season if Ulster even finish fifth or sixth. Obviously, that doesn't get the home quarterfinal by the sounds of what you guys are saying. You are maybe expecting that top four. And as you say, Matthew Morrow pointed to the bookies' odds, which I just uh, checked this morning again. So the latest odds are Leinster odds on the, to win the ultimate rugby championship. Four, four to six. I don't even know if you're joking anymore. <laughs> just let it go. Just let it go. People who listen to the first episode can get it and nobody else will. It's fine. It's fine. We'll just leave it there. Monster <laughs> nine to two. Ulster eight to one. Bulls 12 to one. And then Sharks are, are 25 to one along with Glasgow, even behind Scarlet's and Edinburgh who are 20 to one. So, well, you've already said that you're not really expecting as much from the South African teams as maybe some, some fans are. Well, I, I think the Sharks are going to be a useful side, um, and they have one special player now uh, signed up for this season, Ruan Pinar. So he will be competing back in the uh, in the championship this year with with, with the, that South African franchise. So I, I think top, top four, uh, top four or five, uh, if Ulster finish well in the top six, I you know I think as long as they're in the playoffs, that you know that's all they can hope for, and really a home playoff would be a perfect um, scenario but I'd be happy if they just make the playoffs okay so the Champions Cup then Jonathan as you rightly say knockout the rugby again is the the target Ian's final question was uh, is that possible obviously they're uh, they're still doing this system that I don't like where it's one table and everybody plays different teams makes no sense to me but 
there we go. We've just got rid of the uneven fixture list of the Pro 14. Well, I suppose we actually still have them in terms yeah. of those things. So, no, I haven't got rid of that at all. So, uh, both of the systems of these two competitions baffle me, but here we are. So, Ulster are playing Claremont and Northampton Saints. And, John, as you were uh, pointing out the other day, maybe the, the aura of going to Claremont has uh, gone a little bit already. Uh, well, um, Cass beat them at the weekend in the, in the Stade Marcel Michelin. So, um, that, that was a, a bit of a surprise result and cast were totally uh, um, in for that win. Like they, they played great rugby. Um, so like that's probably in France, that's maybe a bit of a shockwave in France. So Ulster will be looking at that think, well, maybe the Stade Michel's Michelin isn't uh, the fortress it may have been um, over the last uh, 10 years. So at least there's uh, maybe a wee bit of a chink in the, in the Claremont um, sort of armor, so hopefully that's a good sign for Ulster. But it's a tough. That's a it's a tough ask. No yeah. matter what, European games are a level above the well. They call it the Pro 14, Pro 16, or whatever we're going to call it. It's a level above that. It's in behind international test rugby. It's a lot faster. There's a lot more pressure on players. So it is a step step up. It's nearly like um, if you want to say Super Rugby standard. And then you've got your minor cup uh, as being the, the next standard down. Well, you know, it's, it's that sort of level and you need to be on, uh, you know, lift your game to play as well as you can. There in Ulster, obviously, have done reasonably well in Claremont over the years. You know, the Brian McLaughlin's year, uh, whenever um, they should have won that match uh, in Claremont. And, you know, talk about fans, you know, that whole thing about you know, Ulster fans. The, the, the Ulster fans, are, and I would say the only other fans that give them a good run for their money uh, would be the Claremont fans. And, uh, and it's an uh, event to be at, at, at the Stade Michel, uh, Michelin. And, you know, you have to, or, you know, you have to be really on your game to win there. And I think that that's also be a big focus for them to go there and get the result. Jonathan, what... Are we looking at obviously this is such a new structure we didn't get to play it to its completion last year but can you have any sort of guess as to what you think Ulster need from those four games? No, that's very that's very difficult. I think yeah. to be sure you're gonna have to win three, which means that you have to win away somewhere. Now Franklin's Gardens, no disrespect to Northampton, is an easier place to win than than Claremont, but like the key as we saw last year, isn't looking at where you're going to get the away wins. First and foremost is making sure you win the home games because if you lose at home, you're sniggered. Like if you only have four games and you drop a home game, you have a massive, massive task on your hands. That's Claremont up first as well. Yeah. So you set your marker down. So I would say that would be a massive target for Dan. Well, we shall see what we see. We'll debate that closer to the time. As uh, John says, away to Claremont first um, on the, the second weekend in December. Northampton at home later that month and then Northampton away at Claremont at home uh, in January. So we'll see. Am I, be, am I being a little bit harsh on this uh, system? or is it No, it's a terrible, terrible system. system yeah, awful. Here we are. Surely they'll go back to pools next season, won't they? They could. Now, this is radical. They could just use the blueprint from the Heineken Cup and have, <laughs> have wrong with it. That works. Like it's, it's almost like that competition was a massive, massive success. <laughs> Well, like controversial opinion there, Jonathan. Controversial. 
So yes, we'll uh, we'll debate that all closer to the time whenever it uh, comes to kick off come December time. Something to look forward to anyway. But uh, for now, Stephen McCormick asks, as we are unlikely to win anything this season, he says he he agrees with Ian Frizzell, who um ne- neither of them are expecting Ulster to end the, the long trophy drought this season. But Stephen wants to know what's the likelihood in the paying What's the likelihood in the paying spectators seeing some entertaining rugby at Ravenhill, given the importance of winning those home games? And as a follow-up to that, what actually represents entertaining rugby to you and what do you think it means to the majority of fans? Last weekend, or last Thursday, was entertaining rugby for me. My Ulster moved the ball and used the new kicking rules to their advantage, or new kicking laws to their advantage. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk, are there going to be more line-outs in the game? Is that going to slow the whole thing down? I, I You know, I think it it's more interesting. Um, I, I think that Ulster have the ability to run the ball. They've certainly got enough exciting backs to entertain. Um, it's whenever they get involved in the dogfight and it's just hit up rugby all the time and coming around the corner. And, you know, it's whenever they try to do their backline moves and um, they've got the skills and the speed and the pace of these players. And one player that actually I wanted to bring him up now because he has been overlooked was um, Ethan McElroy uh, last Thursday. And here's a player who can has the most amazing sidestep, most amazing feet. He can leave something like Charles Piotr, he can leave somebody standing very, very quickly and looking very stupid. Um, but, you know, with players like that, Michael Laurie and James Hume and all these guys that we've got in the backline, Balakoon, Stockdale and Will Addison, you know, there's lots of talent. And the thing is to get them moving, get them playing, moving forward with the ball and into the right space, that's entertaining rugby for me. Less kicking place, that's what I don't want to say. I don't want to see up and unders in a kick chase game. It is boring. And it's, it's just a matter of luck. It's like throwing the dice in the air mm-hmm. because... What's coming happening now? People are just having to challenge in the air and the ball can go anywhere. It's a 50-50 ball. And to me, that is the most boring rugby you can possibly see. It's like what the Lions did in South Africa. Awful stuff. Awful. Jonathan, what do you think? Do you agree with that? I think it's actually, it's a really interesting question because it is so individual. Like, yeah, absolutely. To address the point of paying customers, like paying customers want a good match day experience, which features a good match. You know, you might you talk about the Saracens fans last week on that sort of corporate thing like they may well have had a good time because they had a good match day experience chatting <laughs> to their mates drinking Prosecco and you know Joel mentioned it earlier about the, the kids making for good photographs so that being a positive for his sort of experience <laughs> like my idea of an entertaining match day experience is having something to write about so like last season while Ulster were winning all the time there wasn't really an awful lot to write about because an awful lot of the teams were rubbish so like I don't know the emergence of Doak, McCann, Callum Reed would be something to write about. That would be a, that would be an entertaining season for me. In terms of the actual style, like I think it's just having a defined style more than anything else. Like we talked about this during the Lions and stuff, but like I like watching South Africa play because they are a brilliant exponent of the style that they're playing. And the reason that the All Blacks in the Springboks is the best rivalry in the sport is because it's two completely different contrasting styles done to the very best of on a good day, the very best of how those two different styles can be played. So it's, it's having a style. So 
the style that Ulster are trying to play is under Don McFarland is defined by this idea of collective speed. So it is entertaining to watch a team nail the style that they're trying to trying to implement. Yeah. And if Ulster can do that, then that's going to make for an entertaining brand of rugby, especially with um, as John sort of said, the caliber of players that can do something unexpected, because that's what at the end of the day gets people excited. That's what gets people looking away from their phones, stopping chatting to their mates, something unexpected happening. And in those players that John listed, there are guys that are more than capable of that. We should have remembered actually whenever somebody was talking about who was going to be your adopted player this season, Ethan McElroy, of course. Yeah, I was just I was actually just going to say that, that of course it is Ethan McElroy. Why do you say of course, Ethan? Because he was your adopted schools player in whatever year that was. Hey, well, that's exactly the right reason. Yeah. Uh, whatever year that was. Yeah. I think I saw him in the quarterfinals and came home raving about him and then it just sort of adopted him as my my uh, next protege at that stage. So yes, now Robert Robert Ballacoon is too mainstream, I assume now. Is that the, the thinking? So I, I believe I believe so. I think Robert Pollock has, has outgrown the need for Gareth Hanna's player of the year. <laughs> Are we all picking player, players to adopt them? Or is, that, is that the case? I bagsy Callum Reid. That's a good shout. That is a good shout. I, I bagsy David McCann. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> I have a decent track record. Well, Johnny McPhillips was the first one. And then well, that was disappointing. That was a blue first time out. But then since yeah, then... He, he left soon after. I'm sure the two things were, weren't connected. So on the note of styles of play, what we find interesting, Donald's question is, as usual, very in-depth, but also an interesting one, I think. So he says, Ulster, you, you have to bear with me. It's very long, as always. Took up two tweets. Donald does nothing in one tweet. No, 280 new- characters are not enough. Not enough for Donald. Ulster's new split field attacking structure with 10 and 15 looking like the two go-to off midfield rocks looks promising given the quality of Ulster's backs, which we've just been talking about. Do you see another upshot of this being the calibre of kicking option, particularly with the 50-22 rule coming in? That's the rule that if a player kicks from inside their own half and the ball bounces before going into touch inside, the other team's 22 to so the team that kicks will then get the throw in of the line out. So does that kick strategy or pragmatism, he calls it, complement or contradict the collective speed game plan that you were talking about there, Jonathan? Because he says more line outs equals less ball in play time, which equals more rest for the opposition, and negating the impact, he says or asks, of Ulster's fast play. Think there is any any contradiction there at all in terms of that the that high speed game plan of Ulster's and um, the the new kicking strategies that this new new rule may well bring in. Well, this is something that like Dan Soper actually talked about. Like whenever I asked him about it um, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, you know, don't don't take this as a notion that we're going to kick the leather off the ball because we're not. And you talking to Dan McFarland there during the week, he emphasised the point that the most pleased that he was was with the three tries that came through phase play in the opposition 22. But it's important to remember that you need as many weapons as you can. Like Ulster's Mall, there's no point in denying it, is a weapon. It's not a case of, you know, turning your nose up at Mall tries or Mall opportunities because you're trying to play quickly. 
because you need to be able a team like Ulster needs to be able to do both like they're not going to get by solely on their mall but at the end of the day as we saw last year if they get their line out right then the mall becomes a huge source of tries it's the same as I suppose Ireland's Ireland under Joe Schmidt but the thing with the 50-22 that I think we'll see is probably not that you'll get a decrease in that idea of incisive play out of your attacking shapes. I think what we'll see is just an awful lot more turnover ball kicked yeah. because it's just a way to flip the field so quickly in transition. So, you know, if Saracens, as an example, knock the ball on or uh, the ball doesn't go to hand and Ulster can get it to Billy Burns quickly and he knocks it to somewhere where there's no cover in the backfield and they can get a 22, then you've instantly made half the field. You know, that's not to be not to be sniffed at, obviously. But the thing to remember about this as well is everybody's talking about this is in terms of the attacking opportunities it's going to generate. The thing that's going to be interesting as well is how you defend it. Yeah. Because like Ulster in recent times, like an awful lot of teams, leave a fairly empty backfield. There's an awful lot of onus put on the wingers to know when to drop. And like Louis Ludic was somebody that I think was brilliant at it. Like Louis Ludic's positional sense of knowing when to drop and when to be in the defensive line was great. And it was something you probably only got a real appreciation of there. Like it wasn't something you would be able to pick up on TV or anything like that, but like just a really clever rugby player. So this idea again of an quite possibly fielding a very good but inexperienced back three. It's going to add another layer of decision-making in defence because it has to be covered. Even when, you know, obviously when the opposition are in their own half, it's not something that you're really thinking about in terms of what has been the way that you've grown up playing rugby since you were a child. Like, it's a new thing. It's a new thing to have to think about. And that's probably, I think, why the law has been brought in more than anything else. It's to get people out of the defensive line and moved into the backfield so that you see more line breaks and open play rather than this idea that teams are just going to try and get line out after line out after line out and use them all. Now, well, fingers crossed it should make for uh, more exciting games and uh, hopefully it does just add that uh, that extra weapon to Ulster's armour. But as you say, possibly the most interesting bit will be what to do defensively on it. That will be something for, uh, in particular, the 15,000 fans returning to Kingspan against Glasgow to, to keep a little eye on. We have a question from Stephen Rossbottom. Now, we talked about this last week because I wondered last week when the first week would be that we don't have any questions mentioning Marcel Coutier. Well, it won't be this week, guys, because Stephen Rossbotham wants to know, do we or should we have brought in a few more new signings since the departure of Marcel? Or might uh, we have the best replacement in Nick Timothy? Surely we still need cover. Now, we did talk about this at uh, fair length on the first podcast of the season and a little bit again last week. So we just don't have time, unfortunately, to go into it again this week. But Stephen, you can listen back to those other episodes and uh, anybody else who hasn't caught them, you can uh, listen back and get your, your answer to that. And we shall wait with bated breath next week to see if that is the first podcast in possibly history that never mentioned that Marcel could say his name. We'll see. So... Moving on to the uh, Women's Interprovincial Championship and the controversy that surrounded Ulster's 
draw with Connacht. First of all, it was a real opportunity for Ulster to get that first win since, what is it, 2012, am I right? Yeah, and I think they'll be disappointed that they didn't get it. Like, they conceded it within a minute and a half. Like, they, in all three games, they've conceded it really, really quickly. But from that point on, they actually really dominated um, possession. They dominated territory. Like, um, there was an awful lot of opportunities there for them, but they just... For a long, long part of the game, they just couldn't score. You know, they were playing against 13 players. Now, admittedly, they had 14. For a portion of the game, Connacht had three cards over the course of the 80 minutes. And I, I think probably the most disappointing aspect of it was conceding so soon after scoring. Because once they scored, you were like, right, they're going to kick on and um, they're going to win this game. But they just conceded so quickly. And then you're trying to claw your way back into it again. Obviously, like you could see by the fact that even whenever they were in their own 22 and it was the 84th or 85th minute, whatever it was, and they were still attacking, still trying to uh, go the length of the field, you could see how much they, uh, how much more they valued the win than the draw. It wasn't a case of, you know, we'll uh, protect the draw. It'll change the narrative a bit from uh, getting beat three, if they were to get beat three times. Like, but, um, I suppose, yeah, the disappointing thing was I think it was a, a game that was there for them. And John, the discussion after the game then quickly turned away from what happened on the field to what happened off it there. FU and Leinster Rugby issued a joint apology to both teams after videos emerged on social media of the, the Connacht squad getting changed in uh, what was really a filthy area. The caption the video was, uh, well, great job getting changed beside the dump and then a little facepalm emoji, don't mind the rats. A very unwanted scenario for uh, for the IRFU, and very disappointing for for the women's game. Really, that this uh, that this happened. The Energy Park is the old well, it's Donnybrook, as to most rugby followers would know it as. Um, has two stadi- or two clubs either end. There's Old Wesley at one end and uh, Active Rangers at the other. And traditionally, Leinster teams or the home team would change in the Active changing room and the Ulster teams normally always change uh, out of the old Wesley's change room and I for the life of me can't understand why that didn't take place it's an interprovincial I mean to call these ladies amateurs really is not fair I don't think okay they're, they're not full time they don't get paid but the effort that they put in the, the, the you know I've been at their training camps this year I've been photographing them on um, Sundays in particular, um, they're in the weights room up. Uh, they train at New Forge and the weights room, and they'd have their sessions up there. And it's really a lot of commitment and time and effort put in. And really, they should have more respect for you know the, the girls and the effort that that they that they do put in. And when they go to play a match, at least changing room should be provided as a basic necessity. So I know there's COVID stuff and all the rest of it, and everybody has to try and, try and be as safe as possible. But even if the warm face masks inside the changing room kept the windows open, doors open, I'm sure there's medication can be put in place to allow that to happen. And I just can't understand why why, why that ha- why it has to be. So I don't say I don't want to say disrespecting because I don't think that was the intention. Yeah. I think it was maybe not just thought out well enough from a point of view of a venue, but maybe it's time now to have a rethink. You know, people are getting back to normality to a certain extent. We're going to have to move forward. We have to live with this COVID, and uh, part of it's going to have to be relaxation of some structures around rugby um, and, and the game itself. It would certainly be interesting to see just how those uh, regulations change as the season progresses. Just on the the RFU's perspective on that, they did explain that for the second round of the championship. 
uh, the Leinster operations team, that was Leinster against Ulster, the Leinster operations team identified an area behind that old Wesley clubhouse you're talking about to house temporary team facilities on review. That area was identified as by Leinster as not being suitable for future use. And a more suitable area in front of the Kenwell Centre of Excellence was identified for Connacht and Ulster. However, they said, unfortunately, as Con- the Connacht team personnel arrived earlier than scheduled in Energy Apart, match operations staff from Leinster weren't yet at the ground and Connacht were advised of the incorrect area, so the previous one, um, to set up their facilities. So that's maybe there uh, a little bit of an explanation as to just how that uh, that came to happen. Jonathan, not, that, well, that's not the issue that I'm sort of making. I think it's the issue is you've two purposely good clubhouses with large yeah, changing yeah. rooms because I've been in both. I know what yeah. the changing rooms look like and there's plenty of room in them. Yeah. And why they just can't just say, look, girls, Ulster one end, Connacht the other and just use the changing rooms. Get on with it. While we're on the women's game, Jonathan, it was... Uh, a disappointing week that was really compounded with that loss to Spain. Can you just sort of put in context just how disappointing that was and the significance it could have on their World Cup qualification hopes? Yeah, well, obviously it was a massively disappointing game. We talked about, um, I suppose, the difference between your first game and your second game for Ulster in pre-season. The lack of a warm-up game for Ireland and the lack of involvement for any of these players and even the early rounds of the Interpose was evident because it looked like an awful lot of them looks like they were playing the first game of the season, the first game in a long time. It's important to put into context that it was a massive disappointment at the time that Ireland would have to qualify for this World Cup because this was off the back of their own massively disappointing home World Cup. And that result, in addition to the Interpose situation, has just made it a massively tough week for, uh, for women's rugby, obviously. And the only hope is that it becomes a watershed moment and it's not a case of people forget about this it's a case of it's looked at of how can we change this because I think the main takeaway has to be and it's exactly what John said the main takeaway has to be the amount of effort that these women are going to to represent their provinces and to represent Ireland because you know you're talking about just to use the Ulster example you're talking about people coming from Calvin people coming from Monaghan people coming from Donegal three times a week and being out of pocket to represent Ulster and this is the kind of thing that's happening. Whatever the circumstances around it in terms of Connacht arriving early or whatever, it's like it's it's just not good enough. Like it's not good enough for anyone, but especially in light of what these people are having to go through to put on these jerseys. No, absolutely. Okay. So finally we have one more question to get through. Unfortunately, due to Zoom related issues, John Baker Dixon and uh, that long title that he has that I read out at the start that I will not read out again has been unable to join us for the last bit but look tis what it is you'll have to make do with myself and Jonathan for this last question which comes in from Mark Dempsey who wants to know what are your feelings on the world 12s is this necessary for the future of rugby or could it be detrimental to the 15s format just for anybody who's not fully au fait with what's been announced it's a 12-side rugby competition that's proposed that it'll take place over three weekends next august that'll generate up to 250 million pounds of income the world 12 limited said the competition is intended to feature 192 of the world's best players ethan mcelroy probably makes it into that i would imagine picked via auction to represent eight franchises who will compete in a round-robin format. So, Jonathan, what do you make of all this talk? Is it necessary, or do you think this could actually be detrimental to the uh, the game as we know it? 
I think it's an absolute flipping nonsense, to be honest. But I would have liked Bigger to still be here to see what he thought, because maybe I'm, maybe I'm just too, uh, too strident on this, but it's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. First of all, right, there's this idea that if it's worked in cricket, it can work in rugby, right? The reason that these shorter forums work in cricket is because the alternative is something that lasts five days. Rugby lasts 80 minutes. <laughs> There's, a, there's this real idea that if a sport isn't making as much money as they want to make, that the answer is like, one, to dumb it down, two, to shorten it, or three, to inject some sort of artificial glamour. And this is all three at once. Like, if rugby wants to grow the game, then it does that by considering its stakeholders its most important stakeholders whenever they make decisions. The most important stakeholders to rugby, because rugby, while it likes to think it's not a niche sport, is a niche sport. So yeah. the broadcasters are not the be-all and end-all. The most important stakeholders in rugby are the match-going fans and the players. This isn't good for any of them. And not enough of the decisions that are made in rugby are made through the prism of does this benefit match-going fans and does this benefit players? So, but, if, you, but if there are if there are fans that fans may some fans may disagree with you and think this will be great, this will be very exciting. I would enjoy this. I will love this. And players may think there's a lot of income coming in here. I could make a few more quid fairly quickly here. You could make a few more quid fairly quickly, but you're also in the middle of a reckoning with how much rugby is too much rugby. Like players are going to play too much and shorten their careers, or something isn't done with the calendar. And as we've seen from the Lions tour that went ahead, despite the fact that fans couldn't play in it, as we've or couldn't go to it, fans playing in it would have been a completely different, uh, <laughs> different thing. That is one way to space it up. As we've seen with the talks over a global calendar, as we've seen with creating yet more competitions or yet more games and existing competitions, nobody's going to give up their stake. Nobody's going to cede any ground. So to create another competition, another code of the game is to just create more strain on already strained players. And it only, like you said, oh, it'll generate 250 million. These things only generate money if people like them, if people want to watch them. And on what basis do people want to watch this? The fact that it's 60 minutes instead of 80 minutes. Like, is there anybody out there that's like, oh, that rugby's a great game. I wish it was 10 minutes short or a half. That would make all the difference. I would watch it then. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like, do you think it's a good idea? I don't know. I'm a host, Jonathan. I don't have opinions. Except, do you, think, do you think that the real issue with rugby is we've tried 15s and we've tried 7s? No, no, so no. Maybe 12 is the perfect number. No, like, I probably don't really like these shortened versions of sports either. I mean, they're talking about it in golf too, like how to make tournaments more exciting or in terms of nine holes or or how they changed PGA Tour tournaments and stuff and I find all that it makes me a bit anxious because I like it the way it is so don't change it but also I am now 30 so not in the lowest age bracket that all these things I guess are targeting and maybe younger generations do disagree with me on this so, but I don't think younger generations are looking at things and being like the, the the notion of this younger target market is people that are watching sport on TikTok. Like the fact that it's half an hour, half rather than 40 minutes doesn't make it easily consumable on social media. But it's 
it's just a dumbing down of things because it's like everything that's shorter and less complicated is better. Whereas just make your product better. And how do you sell your product? You make your product accessible. You make superstars of your players and you make decisions with fans in mind. So you don't kick off an Interpro in Dublin at eight o'clock on a Saturday night and ensure that anybody coming yeah. from the visiting fans is going to be back after midnight. You don't move games to a Sunday afternoon and think people will still want to go. You don't play half your games without the players that casual fans know. And from a media perspective, <laughs> I'm aware that this is coming from somebody in the media. You don't guard your players away from the media because by extension, you're guarding your players from fans. So you make people aware of who these elite, in some cases, world-class athletes are, and you build stories around them. Yeah. No, I you don't I, think, I, let's take the whatever you said, there are 190-something most well-known players, throw them together, call a team the Southeast Superstorm and expect people to care. Like, people will care if you build the game that you have that is obviously, as it has lasted this long, obviously has merit. But the reason that it's not as popular as you want it to be or it's not as popular as you think it should be or it's not as popular as football is, is because you're not allowing it to be. You're taking the things that are good about it and you're putting them at such a distance to the stakeholders and you're making it less appealing to pay play for players. Yeah. Because yeah. players' bodies are being put through more and more and the pay isn't going up enough. The pay isn't going up enough because the game's not popular enough. Like teams are designed... Teams that are well run break even, so there's not more money for the players there. It will be very interesting to see what our listeners think, so perhaps they can let us know on our Twitter account or on the other Belfast Telegraph sport social media accounts. Just one last point on, I think it's Gareth Davies, who is very involved and has been quoted in a BBC article on it and has said that the people involved care about the game and he didn't want to get involved in anything that was an ambush on the sport and the fact that these people do it mentions uh, the likes of Steve Hansen and Eddie Jones who this article seems to be indicating give uh, some sort of approval for it ex-rugby football union chief executive Ian Ritchie former New Zealand rugby union chief executive Steve Chu involved on the board so uh, interesting to see what comes of it, but they certainly would say that they are interested in the future of the sport and that is their their driving ambition behind this. So I'm sure it's something that we will discuss more as the season progresses and as it talks over that competition progress. But primarily, we will be back next week to look ahead specifically to Ulster's Ultimate Rugby Championship opener against Glasgow. And until then, from John Dixon, who has left us, Jonathan Bradley and myself, Gareth Hannah, thank you very, very much for listening.